This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For more than 150 years, the story of a common man from the Smoky Mountains has captured our imaginations and inspired us to celebrate his image in song, story, and cinema. This is the story of one of America's best-known and most recognized folk heroes. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, to tell us the real story of Davy Crockett. One of the truly iconic figures of the American frontier is David Crockett. He was a legend in his own lifetime. Now, he certainly had tales spun about him that were hyperbolic or entirely fictional. But that was only because his real-life rise from backwoodsman to congressman and his extraordinary adventures were heroic and quintessentially American. He stood as a symbol of the new American, the man of the West, and the future of the new republic. He lived at the dawn of the age called Manifest Destiny, the time of an expanding America that is moving west. Crockett is born just 10 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in a log cabin in Greene County, Tennessee, on August 17, 1786. Davy Crockett is a third-generation frontiersman and becomes the fifth of John and Rebecca Crockett's nine children. Davy's father, John, is one of the famous over-mountain men who fights in the pivotal American victory at the Battle of Kings Mountain in 1780. But while he is away fighting during the American Revolution, John's parents are slaughtered by Cherokee, who ally themselves with the British to take advantage of the war to raid and pillage. One of John's brothers is badly wounded in the attack and left for dead, and another is taken captive by the Cherokee and made a slave for 17 years. Now, born into this rugged, patriotic environment of pioneering mountain folk, Davy learns marksmanship at a young age, both for hunting and for protection against marauding Indians. Here's Crockett biographer Buddy Levy. Crockett came from a tradition of woodsmen, and he would have learned from his father and his uncles how to hunt. He learned how to track. He learned how to identify sign, scat, broken twigs. He also learned rough and tumble fighting from his older brothers. Here's historians Stephen Harden and David Eisenbach. Crockett's a jokester. He's remarkably funny. And he's affable. People like him. Being about six or seven by the creek, running into another bar. Well, Tennessee at the time was still the American frontier. You got wild animals, you got fights, and it was in this world where there's no kind of solid established law that David Crockett, you know, begins the process of becoming the myth. By the time Davy is 12, his father bounds him out to a perfect stranger to travel 400 miles on foot in a cattle drive to the eastern seaboard with no arrangements for his eventual return home. Three months of intensive labor pass before Davy travels alone in snow and on foot back to his mountain home where his family runs a tavern. But Davy is in for a surprise. His parents decide he will benefit from formal schooling. He isn't thrilled with confinement in a classroom, but his father is paying for it 
So Davy accepts the inevitable. I went four days and had just begun to learn my letters a little when I had an unfortunate falling out with a boy much larger and older than myself, Davy Crockett. Davy begins playing hooky from school, but after a week, the schoolmaster contacts John Crockett. Davy now thinks he'll be whipped by both the schoolmaster and his own father. My father told me he would whip me if I didn't start immediately to the school. Finding me rather too slow about starting, he gathered about a two-year-old hickory stick and broke after me. I put out with all my might, and soon we were both up to our top speed. But mind me, not on the schoolhouse road, for I was trying to get as far the other way as possible. Davy Crockett, 1834. Davy doesn't stop running, and is soon on another cattle drive to the eastern seaboard. For the next two years, he has more adventures than most people have in a lifetime. Davy returns home just shy of his 15th birthday. Here's Crockett historians Gary Foreman and Paul Hutton. David has well reached the age of puberty, and his growth is enormous. He has grown several inches. He's changed his, his uh, features, and he is now a young man. He's no longer the little boy that ran away from home. When Davy got back to the tavern, it was nighttime, and the evening meal was being served to the herders and teamsters. He moved unannounced into the tavern and sat down amidst the other men. I had been gone so long and had grown so much that the family did not at first know me. And another, and perhaps a stronger reason was, they had no thought or expectation of me, for they had all long given me up for finally lost. Davy Crockett. So he got inside the tavern, sat amongst the other travelers at the same table with the family. Finally, one of his sisters looked at him, recognized his features, and discovered she has just found her long-lost brother, David. For dear life is constant struggle, and the family farm bankrupts the Crockett's. In order to pay his debts, Davy's father is forced to make a difficult decision. Well, here's my boy. His name is David. Shake his hand, boy. Here's criminology professor Arnett Gaston and Stephen Harden. Davy Crockett becomes what is known as a bound boy. It's really a form of indentured service to pay off a debt. It was slightly above being a slave. This had a significant impact on Crockett. We shouldn't, as modern people, judge John Crockett too harshly. The role of children in the early 19th century was vastly different than it is now. Indeed, and when we come back, more of the remarkable life of David Crockett here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we last left off with Davy Crockett paying off his father's debts by becoming an indentured servant. Let's pick up from there. After a year of grueling work, paying off his father's debts to Abraham Wilson and John Kennedy, Davy does something for himself. He understands he needs at least the rudiments of an education. And coincidentally, Kennedy's son runs a school. Davy strikes a deal. He works for the son two days a week in return for four days a week of schooling for six months. That's the only education uh, Crockett ever had. But in that time, he says, I learned how to read, I learned how to write, and I learned how to cipher. With just six months of formal schooling, young Crockett's real education comes from the frontier itself. It's time for you to become a man. It's a rite of passage, a tool men use to provide and protect, a symbol of independence and freedom, one Crockett grows to cherish. His skill with his rifle becomes his trademark. Crockett begins entering shooting matches and impresses all those present with his marksmanship. At 17, he and his flintlock long rifle, he names Old Betsy, often outshoot all the men, winning a steer or a hog as grand prize. He also begins hunting professionally, bringing game, especially bear and deer, to local towns and selling them for their hides and meat. But Crockett is not only driven by profit, he is also a man of charity. Here's Crockett's biographer, William Groneman. He was intensely loyal. When he was out hunting, he would always share the meat of his hunts with neighbors or people in need. His reputation begins to grow but evidently not enough to win himself a girl. Now Davy tried to make his own way. And he was consumed, as young men often are, with thoughts of finding a wife. He courted a young lady named Margaret Elder and took out a marriage license. But she jilted him at the altar and broke his heart. Then at a dance in 1806, he meets the beautiful Mary Polly Finley. He courts her for several months and they fall in love. Polly's mother is initially impressed by the young man, but soon is trying to dissuade her daughter from marrying him. This David Crockett is recklessly adventurous. Polly deserves a settled man with property. It becomes a battle between Crockett and Mrs. Finley. Finally, Davy simply rides up to the Finley house with a wedding party consisting of relatives, friends, and a minister in tow, and says he has come for Polly. William Finley convinces his wife to step outside and talk with Crockett. She surprises everyone by apologizing to her daughter's suitor for the way she has treated him and invites the wedding party into the Finley home. The two are married. Davy is turning 20, and Polly is 18. Crockett feels blessed. As he puts it, he has his own horse and his own rifle, and now his own wife. Says Crockett, I needed nothing more in the whole world. Crockett rents property near the Finleys and goes to work establishing a farm. Children come quickly. A son in 1807, another son in 1809, and a daughter in 1812. 
By the time his daughter is born, the family has moved farther west twice, and Crockett becomes a landowner rather than a renter. Here's Crockett from his 1834 autobiography. I found that farming wasn't what it was cracked up to be. It was therefore more necessary that I should hunt to get along. David is not only esteemed among the other hunters of the region, he's putting money in his pocket and food on the table. In 1812, war with Britain erupts again, and the Trans-Appalachian country is in the thick of it, not fighting British troops, but fighting their Indian allies. The Creeks are especially troublesome. The majority of them support the British and become known as the Red Sticks. A minority, the White Sticks, support the Americans. Receiving arms, trading goods, and occasionally military advisors from the British, the Red Stick Creeks begin raiding outlying American settlements. The Creek attack that caused Crockett and other Tennessee boys to volunteer for service occurs on August 30th, 1813 at Fort Mims, about 40 miles north of today's Mobile, Alabama. So-called fort was not much more than a palisade of logs around the homestead of Samuel Mims. With the Red Stick Creeks on the warpath, American settlers and peaceful Indians crowd into the fort for protection. By late August, the number of people inside the fort reaches 500, militiamen accounting for about half. At noon, on the 30th of August, upwards of a thousand Creek warriors assault the fort and finally set it ablaze, where everyone inside is forced to flee into the open. The Creeks grab small children by the ankles and swinging them through the air, dash out their brains on logs. Men, women, and children are scalped and dismembered. Pregnant women have their bellies split open and their fetuses ripped out, said one witness. The fearful shrieks of women and children put to death in ways as horrible as Indian barbarity could invent could be heard a half mile off. About three dozen Americans escape, some mortally wounded. Their descriptions of what the Creeks have done reverberate across the frontier. Remember Fort Mims becomes a rallying cry. Tennessee legislature authorizes the raising of an army of militiamen. Andrew Jackson is named the army's commander. At the time, Jackson is recovering from a severe wound suffered in a duel. Though he is too weak to get up from his bed, he accepts the appointment, saying he'll have an army on the march in nine days. He immediately issues a call for Tennesseans to volunteer for duty. Although Polly cries and begs David to stay home, he is one of the first to answer Jackson's call. Here's Crockett from his autobiography and Stephen Harden. If every man waited for his wife to be willing for him to go to war, we'd all be killed in our homes. These are the people who murdered his grandparents. These are the people who forced Crockett to leave a loving wife and family. Now we have David Crockett, the, the soldier, for the first time in his life. When Crockett joined the militia, 
He was perfect to chase rogue creeks and got to observe how they move through landscape. It was something that he, in fact, emulated. As the army moved southward, Crockett is put in command of a small party of men and is sent out on a scouting mission to find the Creek Indians. Among the volunteers, Davy is very popular. He is known to be honest. One man's account called David the merriest of the merry, keeping the camp alive with his jokes and stories. During the harsh winter, David spends his own money to buy blankets for the soldiers. In just two weeks, Crockett finds them, penetrating deep into Creek country. This gives Jackson all the information he needs to attack. Split the men into two columns. We'll arrive here before the sun arises. Cross the river at the low point here and here. Yes, sir. In the early morning hours on November 3, 1813, Crockett and 900 other Tennessee militia, under the immediate command of John Coffey, race ahead and surround the Creek village of Tallaloosahatchee. There are dozens of cabins there, with more than 200 well-armed Creek warriors in them. Coffey has his volunteers encircle the village, and then sends a portion of his force in a feint at the center cabins. The trap works, and the Red Stick Creek warriors are all killed, while 84 women and children are taken prisoner. One of the children, a 10-month-old boy orphaned by the fight, is about to be killed by squaws when the troops intervene. He is carried to Andrew Jackson, who takes him into his tent and coaxes him to drink a mixture of brown sugar and water. The boy becomes Andrew Jackson, Jr. A week later, at Talladega, Crockett is in even a bigger battle when a thousand Creek warriors come rushing out of the woods. The warriors came yelling on and continued till they were within shot of us, and we fired and killed a considerable number of them. They broke and ran across our line where they were fired on, and so we kept them running under heavy fire until we had killed upwards of 400 of them. Davy Crockett. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett here on Our American Stories. And when we last left off with Davy Crockett and the Tennessee militia battling against the British-backed Red Stick Creek Warriors, who was in the War of 1812, let's continue with this story. The War of 1812 is over in March of 1815, after a treaty is signed recognizing a military stalemate. Crockett returns to his family and home in the backwoods of Tennessee, but his bliss is short-lived. No sooner had he returned home than Polly died. She had been fine after the birth of their third child, Margaret, but she soon took ill and passed on rapidly. Davy was devastated. Death entered my humble cottage 
and tore from my children an affectionate and good mother and took from me a tender and loving wife. Crockett forges on as a widower and a year later marries Elizabeth Patton, a widow with two small children of her own. She lost her husband in the Creek War. Crockett will father three children with her. He moves west again in 1817 to Lawrence County, Tennessee. And at the same time, he began his political career. First as magistrate, later as colonel of the local militia regiment, thus the title Colonel Crockett. And soon he began to think about running for the state legislature. Crockett's reputation as a frontiersman and soldier make him a standout candidate. He becomes the voice of laborers, tradesmen, pioneers, and farmers, those building America into the powerhouse it's becoming. His campaign style is simple, one that involves whiskey drinking and laughable storytelling. It's hot as blazes out here. I bet you all are thirsty. We need to wet our whistle. Here's his historian, David Eisenbach. I hope I get your vote. You got my vote, sir. Yes, sir. Good. David Crockett was a politician. The frontiersman was part of his image-making campaign in order to get elected uh, to a population that did not want to hear from uh, the old-time politicians. When Crockett's elected to the United States Congress, he arrives in Washington and still takes the floor of the House pretty much dressed in his buckskins. In 1821, he's elected to the Tennessee General Assembly and re-elected in 1823. He's elected in a landslide to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826 and re-elected in 1828. David Crockett looms huge in the notion of what the American frontier was. He became a symbol of possibility, of hope, that the common man could actually rise to great heights. A man with six months education ends up in the halls of Congress. It's a uniquely American story. Andrew Jackson becomes president in 1829, and the year after he signs the Indian Removal Act, which Crockett, to Jackson's dismay, opposes. With Crockett running for re-election, Jackson backs his opponent, William Fitzgerald, who immediately begins running a smear campaign against Crockett's character. At a campaign stop in northwest Tennessee, Crockett confronts Fitzgerald. Forget Davy Crockett. I will give you the real voice of Tennessee in Washington. When Crockett and Fitzgerald arrived for one of their co-stump speeches, Crockett stood up and strode toward the stage and said, you know, if you continue with these casting aspersions, I'm going to give you a country caning. Fitzgerald leveled a pistol at Crockett's chest and said, take one more step and it'll be your last. I suggest you leave. In addition to his moral flaws, it would appear that Mr. Crockett is not quite as tough as he claims. 
The event with William Fitzgerald and the pistol was devastating to Crockett. He had run part of his campaign on his courage, and here he was publicly slinking away in front of someone. It was kind of an assault to his manhood. After a brutal campaign, Crockett loses a stunning upset in his re-election bid in 1830. When Crockett lost his bid for Congress, he sort of slunk home with his tail between his legs. He was now broke, arriving to find out that his, his wife had also left him and he was living alone. It was a very low, low point in his life. That is until a play opens on April 25th, 1831 in New York City. One of the things that revitalized Crockett and his career was the creation of this play called The Lion of the West, which was clearly uh, a depiction of Crockett. At the beginning, Crockett was sort of offended by this. He felt like he was being made fun of, but as it turned out, the play actually made him an international celebrity. When Crockett loses his election bid for a fourth term in 1834, he starts thinking about moving to the Mexican held territory of Texas. Pioneers looking for cheap land stream across modern-day Alabama, Mississippi, and Arkansas into a new frontier full of opportunity. By 1836, 30,000 Americans have moved to Texas. Davy Crockett is one of them. By the time the 49-year-old Crockett reaches Memphis, some 30 like-minded friends have joined him. The night before they cross the Mississippi, a celebration is held in his honor. Bar hopping finally takes the revelers to Neil McCool's. They hoist a whiskey-filled Crockett up on a counter. He stands up, surveys the crowd, and says, You may all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Here's historian Donald Frazier. The Texians were essentially the Anglo settlers in Mexican Texas. They'd started coming in in the last days of the Spanish regime and the first days of the new Mexican Republic. These guys were coming to Texas in order to make Texas into a new America. Like the United States, Mexico is a new country. It has recently won independence from Spain. One of the heroes of Mexico's war against Spain is General Santa Ana. He is now elected the Mexican president. Bit by bit, the ruthless Santa Ana, who promotes himself as the Napoleon of the West, seizes more power. He raises taxes, takes away freedoms. Now the angry Texians are calling for revolution. They want independence from Mexico. In response, Santa Ana sends 500 troops to confiscate weapons from the Americans. When the Texans refuse to surrender their guns, Santa Ana makes plans to retaliate. What began as a fresh start in Texas is now a call to arms. Sam. I'd be happy and honored to fight for the future of the Republic of Texas. Commander of the Texian Army, General Sam Houston, 
dispatches Crockett and his companions to a garrison where the Texian soldiers recently expelled Mexican troops, seizing control of the former Spanish mission, now a military fortress called the Alamo, located in San Antonio. They arrive at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. And when we come back, we continue the story of Davy Crockett. And there aren't many like this in American history. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. we continue with the story of Davy Crockett and let's pick up where we last left off with the arrival of Davy and his fellow soldiers at the Alamo on February 8, 1836. Y'all halt right there and state your business. We're volunteers from the United States here to fight for the Republic of Texas. Open the gates up. William Travis who is in command of the Texas regulars gets word of an advancing Mexican army. Santana advances north. Here's Crockett from his autobiography. Take note. When this war is won and Texas has achieved her independence, these people are going to need a strong leader. And I intend to give them what they need. On February 22nd, the San Antonians celebrate George Washington's birthday, dancing and eating tamales and enchiladas. What Crockett and those stationed inside the walls of the Alamo, including numerous women and children, don't know is that an enraged Santa Ana and his army of nearly 2,000 soldiers will arrive the following day and surround the Alamo. If you're going to teach these Texans a lesson, you need to teach them that lesson at the Alamo. So the first thing he does is try to scare them. Raises a black flag of no quarter. The black flag means? None of you will be spared. And he sets his guns up in strategic position to begin bombarding the Alamo. Several different times during the siege, the sharp shooting of Crockett and his Tennesseans are instrumental in driving back the Mexicans. Crockett is living up to his reputation. What people need to understand about the Battle of the Alamo is that it is a siege. And this battle lasted 13 days. After one of the battles, William Travis writes, The Honorable David Crockett was seen at all points animating the men to do their duty. Colonel William Travis, 1836. March 5th. 1836. Starving, sleep-deprived, and outnumbered more than 10 to 1, Davy Crockett and some 190 Texians refused to surrender and prepared to fight to the death. Here's the author of Lone Survivor, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. Man, there's a thing that happens when death's at the door. Most people don't know when the Reaper's going to show up, right? You just kind of... Hopefully you, you die in peace or you die quickly. 
when you see the Reaper standing outside the door and you know he's coming in here for us, your world just kind of lends perspective in that moment. What was important, what's not important, who I wish I would have talked to. Man, it's a hell of a thing to, to go through that. Musket! Musket! Santa Ana is relentless, accepting heavy losses to breach the fortress. On the morning of March 6th, he launches a massive assault. So he was willing to send a political message both to the United States and to the people of Mexico using the blood of his men as the ink for this missive. According to Susanna Dickinson, who was there throughout the siege and is one of the non-combatants crowded into Alamo's chapel, Crockett steps into the chapel and says a prayer before joining his Tennesseans defending the South Wall. Crockett and all the Tennessee boys fire their rifles until out of ammunition and then use those rifles as clubs. Here's retired U.S. Army General David Petraeus. Davy Crockett did what many American patriots have done, and that is decide to stay and fight for a cause in the face of an attacking enemy. And it speaks volumes about him uh, and about his character. After 90 minutes of furious fighting, it's over. The Mexican army takes the Alamo. All of the fort's defenders are killed. As we passed through the enclosed ground in front of the church, I saw heaps of dead and dying. 182 Texans and 1,600 Mexicans were killed. I recognized Colonel Crockett lying dead and mutilated between the church and the two-story barrack building, and even remember seeing his peculiar cap lying by his side. Susanna Dickerson, Alamo Survivor, 1836. There are approximately 25 different accounts of how Crockett died at the Alamo. There's no way to know because there are no credible witnesses to it. All I can tell you is Crockett became a Texas icon by dying here. He was actually only in Texas two months before he met his death at the Alamo. From the smoking ruins of the Alamo, the nation will soon learn that Davy Crockett gave his life defending Texas and the American dream. General Sam Houston calls on Texans to avenge Crockett's death and remember the Alamo becomes their rallying cry. Hundreds of angry Texans are drawn to the cause of independence. In a little over a month, on April 21, 1836, Sam Houston and his troops defeat Mexican forces and capture Santa Ana, gaining their independence. Nine years later, Texas will become the 28th U.S. state. Davy Crockett may well have perished at the Alamo, but the Crockett of legend has just begun. The Crockett legend easily transfers from stage to motion pictures, where he is always featured as the hero and always in a coonskin cap. On the night of December 15, 1954, America's first ever television miniseries begins airing on Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. 40 million people, almost one-fourth of all American television sets, glow with a black and white image 
of a young Texan named Fess Parker, starring as Davy Crockett on ABC. And now, Walt Disney. It's characteristic of American folklore that most of our favorite legends and fables are based on the lives of real men, like Davy Crockett of Tennessee. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. And the show's theme song, A Ballad of Davy Crockett, becomes number one on the music charts for months. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Walt Disney creates a new series called Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. It's positioned perfectly because America is still in the post-war era. Uh, it believes strongly in patriotism. And along comes Davy Crockett, another effort to re rekindle the light of the hero that people have forgotten for many, so many years. And it's with this timing that Crockett emerges again as a monumental hero in America's past. And he does it in such a way that he captures the imagination of a whole television crowd that remembers him as, as coonskin caps and uh, a host of other kitsch in pop culture. In America, the Crockett craze certainly took off with the first episode. Well, everyone was really taken aback and unaware. Uh, they didn't have any marketing ready like they would today. It was just something that had to be developed after the fact. But quite soon we had little boys and girls running around in coonskin caps and full buckskins, uh, rifle trying to hunt bear just like Davy Crockett did, trying to talk like Fess Parker did. But others made do with imagination and a good stick. And they played out the Battle of the Alamo in backyards all across America. Of course, more often than not, Davy Crockett won his last battle because historical fact was pretty irrelevant to toddlers in America. Davy Crockett has had a remarkable afterlife, growing to proportions that no one at the time of his death could have ever imagined. New Crockett's have been created, meeting the needs of new generations of Americans. And I think it's safe to say that Davy Crockett will always live in the American heart. At least so long as Americans cherish decency and freedom. And great job on that, Greg. And thanks to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen and Vigilantes. We're lucky to have him. We're honored to have him. What a professor he was for so many years out on the West Coast, any students lucky enough to have studied under him, and Greg Hengler did, well, they'll be happy to hear his voice on our national show telling stories about this country. Cal State, Northridge, UCLA, Pepperdine, that's where Dr. Roger McGrath taught. And again, we've all had those teachers who brought history to life, and they're a blessing, and we need more of them now than ever here in this great country. This is Lee Habib, Davy Crockett's story, the story of the American frontier here on Our American Stories. Fought single-handed through the Indian War Till the creeks was whipped and peace was in store And while he was handling this risky chore Made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett The man who don't know fear 
went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government and laws as well. Took over Washington, so I heard tell, and patched up the crack in the Liberty Bell. Davy, Davy Crockett, seeing his duty clear. When he come home, his politicking was done. Why, the Western March had just begun. So he packed his gear and his trusty gun and lit out a grinning to follow the sun. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I like to do things in a funny, different way, a memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance. When we hire people, we look at their resumes, and when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume, and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments how many years he or she spent at that, and then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it, okay? I just see how many years, how many years, and if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the detail to see if that person fits the job and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building, you can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay. And we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early. And we call them Perseverance Awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here 35 years or more. Fantastic perseverance. And of course, they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. I don't happen to be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back, your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio. 
turns out. It's, well, everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I don't know why we're talking about it here, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it, it looks like a fine watch, but there are solar cells inside the watch and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light, and once charged, it can stay in the dark in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. So it's perseverance. That watch is gonna be around as long as you're gonna be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your the, the date when you began engraved on the back. Then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll, I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money just after 10 years, right? Now, now, getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you a watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire, right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch, and that's why we give you a watch of three. So, getting back to the 10 years. So, we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Sincata, where you want to go and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there. 15 years or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years. Yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star with, with as many friends as you can invite. I think it's worth $20,000 or 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know. That, that, that cost me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to, but hey, it's a free world. It's your money now, $25,000. Give it in any amounts to anybody you want. So we're making our employees, we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist. What other companies do that? Now recently, I'm gonna jump forward to 35 years, $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want this is it this is the time you're old enough make that list have fun because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it and that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list this is not to be to pay down the mortgage it's not for the grandkids uh, education it's for your bucket list and we require that you tell us how you spent the money we want to share in that joy so that's what perseverance means to us we value it and we pay you to persevere. We reward you to persevere. And thanks for that, Dr. Bob. And if you're listening and you run and own a business, take heart. How you treat your people 
Well, what you do with that money and what you do with that time will determine outcomes. Perseverance. Life lessons from Dr. Bob here on Our American Stories. John as he made off with the revenue of us barons and the aristocracy he took our land and for a laugh held our sons hostage too Magna Carta Magna Carta told King John he's gotta be this is Lee Habib and this is How American Stories and you're listening to this interesting music about of all things the Magna Carta and the idea of setting history to music well it worked out pretty well for the composer of Hamilton setting Ron Chernow's remarkable biography into one of the greatest hit plays of all time. And that's what we're about to dive into. Not Hamilton, the Magna Carta. During our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law, on what the rule of law is, what happens when it's absent and present in human life, and how it silently shapes the world around us without us even knowing it. And our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of this British document that paved the way for what we now know and love as the United States of America. Magna Carta was negotiated in the great meadow of Runnymede. And it's still a very atmospheric place today. The great meadow still stretches outside the Thames. We're listening to the preeminent scholar on Magna Carta, British historian David Carpenter, who has an appropriately named book, Magna Carta. It's very close to Heathrow Airport. And the great aeroplanes which take off from Heathrow come up and they fly over Runnymede and they often then turn and and fly all the way down its length and disappear into distance. And it's rather symbolic in a way because it's as though they're taking Magna Carta with them through the world. And of course that is true, that the Charter has become one of the most, perhaps the most famous document in world constitutional history. Okay, but what... Is it this thing that's in the dead language of Latin? This thing that politicians like Britain's former Prime Minister David Cameron debated with his opponents. Harriet Harman. Last month, the Prime Minister celebrated the Magna Carta. If he accepts that in a democracy there needs to be an effective check on executive power, Will he abandon his plans to water down the Human Rights Act? The point she makes about the Magna Carta, I would say, uh, demonstrates that there were human rights before the Human Rights Act. Um, This thing that's even allowed such a raucous debate as the one you just heard to happen every single week during the legendary question time in Britain's Parliament. And this thing that the same David Cameron did not know what it meant in English, his country's language, when of all people, David Letterman asked him. And the literal translation is was what? You have magna... I, I, again, you're testing me. Um, <laughs> boy, it'd be good Fine, if you knew it. this. Yeah, well, it would be. 
this thing that the rapper Jay-Z named one of his albums after, and we have no clue why. People who have time to debate such things in online forums say that they think it's because Magna means greater and Carta. Sounds close to Jay-Z's actual last name, Carter. Meaning that Jay-Z thinks of himself as great, which is as close as you can get to the opposite of the spirit of Magna Carta. Holy Grail. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Alex, that was a cutesy little detour that you just brought us through, but you still haven't answered what is Magna Carta. Well, I'm not ready to answer yet, but David Carpenter is with a little prehistory going way, way back to the reign of King John all the way back to the 13th century. 1214, there was a great deal of resentment in England about the whole government of King John. His manipulation of justice, denial of justice, his seizure of people's property without due legal process. Because John, if you got against him, would simply send in the heavies. He would send in his household knights to seize your property, possibly even to imprison you. There was also loathing of John personally, loathing of John. And that was because he was a murderer, murdering some of his greatest opponents. He murdered his nephew Arthur, who was a rival for the throne. And in the most notorious of all, he murdered the greatest noble woman of the age, Matilda de Breo, starved her to death in the vaults of Corfe Castle, along with her eldest son. And that wasn't John's only problem. His great quarrel with the church, and that was because in 1204-1205, the Archbishop of Canterbury died, and John thought he had a wonderful successor, which was a loyal agent, the Bishop of Norwich. But the monks of Canterbury elected somebody else, the Pope intervened, and the Pope insisted that instead of John's candidate, the Archbishop of Canterbury should be Stephen Langton. And now Stephen Langton was actually an Englishman, but he was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a great academic. And John just thought, well, how can I accept as Archbishop someone I don't know? I mean, university academics didn't swim into John's orbit very often. And so I think in some ways he said, I don't know him, but also he's been a professor, he's practiced teaching at the great capital of my great enemy, Paris. And so John refused to have him. And that led into a long quarrel with the Pope, Pope Innocent III. In the end, England was placed under an interdict. John was excommunicated. What it meant was that mass couldn't be celebrated. People couldn't be buried in consecrated ground. Churches were closed. I think it did have a profound effect on the on the psyche of people in England, depressing effects. And of course, obviously, it's John who's, in a sense, to blame for it. And the, the accounts of it, they are horrific. They, they do indicate a, a very profound trauma caused by the interdict. On the other hand, it's perfectly true, government went on. It, it didn't stop John exacting large sums of money from his subjects. And in some ways, John almost welcomed the interdict because it meant he could make even more money from the church. He simply seized church property. Uh, and, and so in that sense, John came from it. I, I suppose I ought to say, well, what about John personally? Well, I mean, he had a reputation for impiety, for impiety. I mean, John laughed during Mass. He, he, the records of his own government show him constantly 
having to give alms to the poor because he'd broken various fast days because he'd eaten meat on Friday or gone hunting on a saint's day or gone hawking when there were some restrictions on those kinds of activities. So John was notoriously impious. And yet there was still more. And Magna Carta, if it's about one thing, is about money. Now, already by the time John came to the throne, there was very great resentment at the high levels of taxation in England. Well, John tripled his revenues, tripled them. And that was because in 1204, he lost a large part of the Continental Empire. And so he then spent 10 furious years in England, rebuilding his treasure, getting as much money as he could to try and win that empire back. Everyone suffered from these financial exactions, the church, the barons, knights, free tenants, all the way down to the peasantry. And in 1214, he launched that campaign on the continent. It was a disaster. His allies were decisively defeated at a great battle in Flanders, the Battle of Bouvines. John's campaign in the south of France ran into the ground and got nowhere. So when he comes back to England in the autumn of 1214, his treasure is spent, his prestige is in tatters. And that's when his baronial enemies went for him. They took a great oath that they would bind themselves together and not make peace with the king until he gave the concessions they wanted. And they were already thinking in terms of a great charter which would restrict his operations and solve all these grievances in terms of detail. That was what was so new, is that the barons put together, uh, helped by churchmen, a very, very detailed program which restricts the king. And in the end... John gives way. Gives way to meeting at Runnymede and considering their demands. Why does he give way in 1215? Well, I said his situation was parlous when he got back from his campaign in France in the autumn of 1214, but it wasn't actually completely desperate at that stage. He still had control of all his castles in England. He still had sufficient money to hire mercenary soldiers. And so in the course of 1215, first months of 1215, there's really a standoff between John and his opponents. Neither side want quite to commit themselves to outright war. And then something happened in May 1215, um, which destroyed John's position, and that was the fall of London. The barons, by a clever ruse, got hold of London, and that meant John knew he could not win the war, because London's the great capital of the country, its wealth is now in baronial hands, it's far too large to besiege. John knew there was no easy way to win the war, and so what he thought was, right, that these wretched people are demanding this charter, are granted to them. Uh, I don't think it'll ever be enforced, But nonetheless, I'll make the concessions they want, and probably that will uh, mean they'll all go home, uh, and there'll be peace, and then possibly, I hope, things will go on much as before. And when we come back more on the story of Magna Carta, first salvo in our Rule of Law series. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue 
with Alex and the story of Magna Carta. On June 10th, 1215, King John and the Barons meet at Runnymede. And just imagine this epic meeting of minds and of power. A king for the first time in human history significantly giving into the demands of people who are not kings. We do know quite a bit about the scene at Runnymede, and it's wonderfully described by Ralph of Coggeshall, abbot of the Cistercian Abbey in Essex, and he describes the great tents and pavilions stretched out across Runnymede, the great, great pavilions of the king, and they towered above the smaller tents of the, of the great barons. So you can imagine that great meadow just full of people. Now, during all that time, between 10th and 19th of June, which was when they were all encamped at Runnymede, we know that John was actually living at Windsor Castle. And I think that's because he felt unsafe in Runnymede. You know, if you spend the night there, surrounded by these hordes of your enemy barons and knights, you might be unsafe. So, conversely, of course, the barons weren't prepared to come to Windsor because there they would have been in the king's power. All of them feeling safe, as safe as one can feel, on neutral ground amongst the enemy, came up with the Magna Carta. Charter was conceded on June the 15th. That's the day John gave it. It's, the Charter ends given by our hand in the meadow of Runnymede on the 15th of June in the 17th year of our reign. But when John was finished, that didn't mean that it was finished. And there were another four days before the assembled barons actually accepted the the peace that the charter had brought. A process that by itself was a victory for humankind. That not a king single-handedly, but that we together decide how we want our society to be run. Concessions that the barons couldn't have possibly known would become one of the greatest in history, even called by some the birth certificate of the rule of law, the guarantee that publicly known and stable law will rule the day, allowing all of us to go about our days, living our lives, building our dreams, our families, our careers without Fear, as long as we respect the law too, as opposed to the thousands of years before then of rule by whim, the whim of the dictator. But these parents did know that something big enough did happen, at least for their own lives, that they celebrated with their king. John then did celebrate with a great feast. Probably that was at at Windsor Castle. And so just for a moment, uh, it looked as though there was going to be a genuine reconciliation. But that would change. Before we get there, though, we continue the celebration of the historic concessions that these barons did achieve in writing. The very first chapter of Magna Carta protects the liberties of the church and restricts the ability of the king to place his own people 
into bishoprics. And, and so in the end, John submitted. Submitted to a civil institution ruling itself. Then there were the winds on the hated taxes like this strangely named one. There was a tax called scootage. And this meant that if the king didn't want the military service of a great baron, he could demand a money payment itself, scootage. And that's because the Latin scutagium means a shield, a shield. And so scootage has been taken relatively rarely by kings before 1199. John, though, takes two or three times more scootages than ever before. And that is then restricted in Magna Carta because Magna Carta's chapters 12 and 14 state that no scootage in future is to be taken without the consent of the kingdom, without in effect, although he doesn't use the, the word, the, the consent of Parliament. The consent of those who make the laws, and the laws themselves, again, bye-bye to the whims of the king, and... It also curtailed his authority over widows. <laughs> oh, I'm not joking. It really says here, widows. To preserve widows from being forced by the king into remarriage. Now, before 1215, this was a very major source of patronage and revenue. The king's ability to marry off widows to his henchmen as reward, or alternatively, which happened a great deal, he would charge widows large sums of money for permission not to be forced into marriage. Now, what Magna Carta says is that widows are not to be forced to be remarried any longer. The Charter has been called a major step in the emancipation of women. And the rule of their own lives. Then, there's the most famous line of the Magna Carta one which is still on the statute book of Britain today, says no free man shall be imprisoned, exiled, deprived of property, save by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And that's a real beauty and about as close to a definition of the rule of law as you're gonna get. But it wasn't law for all or even for most. Now, the catch there is free, no free man. And that meant that the unfree peasants who form the great bulk of the population are not protected by the Charter from um, any of those things. Or well, the most important thing they're not protected from is being deprived arbitrarily of their land. And that meant that their lords could simply um, chuck them off the land to discipline them. Uh, you know, if you're in any way difficult, recalcitrant, bullshit, the Lord can simply remove you from your land, deprive you of your, your living, and you have no legal recourse. Magna Carta does not protect you against that at all. It isn't talked about much, but the Magna Carta ain't perfect. It was actually completely thrown out of the window only a few years after it came to be. But it laid a stake, a stake in the ground that this rule of law thing should be a thing, that it must be a thing, a stake that could and would be expanded over the centuries to every citizen, to every race in Britain, in America, and now in the 123 democracies 
of the world. 64% of the countries on Earth. There's clearly more way to go. There's more to fight for. And even in democratic countries like ours, as we'll cover in this series, the rule of law is often violated and must be perennially fought for. Something that the British barons understood. Then, at the end, the most stunning and revolutionary feature was that 25 barons were appointed, chosen by the barons themselves, in order to enforce the charter, and indeed to put right anything else the king does wrong. So a permanent executive is now set up to monitor royal government. And if you think the charter is being broken, you can appeal to the 25, and then the 25 are actually empowered in the charter itself to actually force the king to keep the charter and to put right any breaches in it by seizing his lands, his castles, in effect by making war on the king. Uh, resistance is made lawful. And there you have it, what you didn't know, some of the things I didn't know, and I went to a great American law school, the University of Virginia. And we're going to learn so much more about the rule of law in this twice-monthly series entitled as such. And if you want to find Rule of Law, go to iTunes and search for Rule of Law. And subscribe to Our American Network while you're at it. We love to talk about history because it's relevant in our lives today. From the Magna Carta comes the Constitution. From the Constitution comes all of our God-given rights. This is Lee Habib, the story of Magna Carta, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, and family is a big part of it. And we understand deeply that families all look different in this country and everywhere else. And today we're listening to an excerpt from Betsy Fassbinder's book titled Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. It's the story of her and her relationship with her stepson, Max. Here's Betsy. A few months before Tom and I were to be married, Max wandered into the dining room of the house we shared. I was sorting through a box of old photographs. Max tossed a bright orange Nerf ball, said nothing, and didn't look at me. His focus was completely on the ball. Hi, bud. Nice moves. No reply. What you doing? he finally asked. Just trying to organize some of my pictures. In my months of living with Tom and Max, I'd learned to let Max come close on his own. If I crowded him or moved too quickly, he'd skitter away, his tolerance for closeness dissipating like so much water vapor. If I was patient, we'd often end up playing, laughing, and recently even snuggling on the couch with a book or a TV show. "'Who's that?' he asked, peeking around my shoulder. "'My mom, when she was young. "'What's she sitting on? "'A paper moon. "'They used to have them at fairs and carnivals. "'People liked to pose for pictures on them. "'That's dumb. "'It doesn't even look like a real moon. "'After the wedding, I suppose she'll be your Grandma Sylvia.' 
He caught the ball and then sidled up beside me, leaning his warm body against my arm. He pressed a dirt-smudged finger on another photograph. Who will that be to me? He was my grandfather, the one who died a few months ago. Max shrugged and resumed his ball tossing. I already got a grandfather, he said, not unkindly. Lots of kids have two grandpas. I guess my grandfather would have been your great-grandfather. Hmm. Too bad he had to die. I could have used one of those. As I continued my sorting and stacking, I felt a pinch in my chest. Death is a barbed topic, but particularly with a child who lost his mother only two years before. I shuffled past the pictures of dead relatives. The Nerf ball stilled again, and Max propped his elbows on my table, resting his chin on the heels of his upturned palms. What about them? he asked, pointing to a picture of my sister and her family. He'd known them his whole life, just as he had known me, played with my niece and nephew regularly, Megan just a year older, Matt two years younger than Max. He'd attended birthday parties and family dinners, but I could see that he was beginning to grasp the change that we were about to undergo. Jim and I will be your aunt and uncle. Megan and Matt will be your cousins. Sweet, he said, looking into my face for the first time since he'd entered the room. His eyes were chocolate pools, his thick, dark hair a sleek, shiny coat that made me want to run my fingers over it. I don't have any boy cousins. And how about him? My brother John? Well, he'll be your uncle. I was especially happy to share my younger brother with Max. John loved kids, and being much like a giant kid himself, had a knack for being silly with them. We sorted stacks of aunts and uncles, cousins and friends. Wow, you have a lot of people, Max sighed. I suppose I do. He began to finger through the stacks, messing up what I'd sorted. My original task no longer mattered. As we neared the bottom of the stack, a honey-thick warmth began to fill me. Perhaps my family was to be the unexpected dowry I'd bring to this little boy who'd already lost so much. Whoa! he exclaimed, laughing at my third-grade picture, the one where my hair had been expanded to new dimensions by an especially humid Indiana day. At moments like those, Max was just a little boy, buoyant with energy, easy with a laugh. He played Legos and watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and tossed balls. At other times, when he was still or thought no one was looking, it seemed that the earth's pull was just a little stronger where he stood, tugging the corners of his mouth downward, making his eyes appear years older than the number of his birthdays would imply. Just as I was about to put the last of the pictures into the box, Max pressed a finger once more to a face. And who will this be to me? Beneath his finger I could see the edges of my own face. I was suddenly flooded with a heart swell for which I had no name. This child of the man I loved was becoming my son. We'd have family Christmas cards and school art stuck with magnets to the fridge. I'd make goodie bags at birthday parties, snap pictures at graduations. 
All these things I'd never allowed myself to want, thinking that perhaps my own history had left me too wounded to allow myself children of my own. I was becoming a mother, but without the benefit of a growing belly or a baby shower to prepare me. I should know the answer to his simple question. I should know how to say just the right, wise, magical thing. But I didn't. So I offered the therapist's cop-out question. Well, what do you think? Max shrugged, then looked away. And I knew it was my job to field this one. Jumbled words bobbed to the surface of my mind, like those triangle-shaped answers floating in the blue waters of a magic eight ball. Finally, the image rose to the surface. I'll be your second mom, I said. Oh. I'm sorry that your first mom died. I liked her a lot. Silence floated between us. Then Max leaned against me, his chin still in his palms. What should I call you? he asked, not looking at me. I'd known him his whole life, and he'd called me Betsy all that time. My heart pounded against the cage of my ribs. My stomach turned over. Mama, I wanted to cry. I'll be your mama and you'll be my son. I resisted. You can call me Mom or Mama. You can also call me Betsy if you'd rather. Whatever feels okay for you. He stood there a minute and I waited, thinking I'd get a pronouncement of my new title. What's for dinner? he asked, picking up his ball. Burgers. Sweet, he said, tossing the ball as he walked out of the room. At our wedding a few months later, Tom and I said our vows to one another. Then Max was invited to stand beside us, and I made vows to Max. I promised to step into the shoes his mother had been forced to leave behind, and to be the best mother I could be. I promised to help him remember her. After the wedding, for the next few days, Max tried on a new title for me. Can we go bowling, he'd ask. And he'd follow the question by mouthing the word, Mom. The word was silent. It seemed he was trying it on, seeing how it felt in his mouth. My hopes floated like a pink helium balloon. And then, like a thousand hornets, guilt attacked that balloon, piercing it until it lost its air and sank. It felt wrong to take such pleasure in seeing his little plump lips form that singular syllable. After all, this new son of mine was an inheritance that I'd not have if he and Tom hadn't sustained such an enormous loss. I felt small, and smaller still when old habits resumed, and Betsy was once again my only title. I tucked this shameful disappointment away, telling no one. Weeks later, as I drove him home from school, Max pulled out a baggie full of Cheez-Its from his Ninja Turtle lunchbox. He munched away, licking each finger of its orange dust. With his focus deep inside the near-empty snack bag, he suddenly said, I notice I don't call you Mom. I breathed to calm my voice. I noticed that. One last cracker, then four fingers to lick. 
When I say Betsy, I mean Mom. I swallowed past the dry rock that had formed in my throat. Thanks, I said. That's nice to know. He looked out the window. Moms die, you know. I think maybe it's safer if you're just Betsy. We could have had a long talk about magical thinking and death and how nothing he could say or not say could cause me to die or could have caused his mother to die. But this just didn't seem like the time for all of that. I willed tears away, not wanting to overwhelm him. He had so much to carry. Thanks, bud. I appreciate you telling me. Those big chocolate eyes found mine. I waited. Hey, Betsy. Yeah, I said, delighted with the new sound of my old name. What's for dinner? And what a beautifully told story. Again, that's Betsy Fassbinder, her book, Filling Her Shoes, a memoir of an inherited family. And my goodness, that moment when she just is, well, she just can't take that maybe this boy won't call her mom, but yet she knows what the boy's been through. And it just, well, you're in her shoes and his in this beautifully told story. And 16% of all American families are mixed ones. And we're aware of that fact, and that's why we bring you this story Betsy Fassbinder's story, her stepson Max's story, here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 